This morning, I want to speak to you from the subject, Chasing After Your Father's Heart. This is part one in a series on this subject, to the end that our life in Christ would increasingly conform to our Father's will in this world. Today is Father's Day, and it is appropriate to recognize and express appreciation for our fathers and father figures whose presence, provision, acceptance, direction, and protection in the past and presently has had positive impact on us. Over the past weeks, we have witnessed and experienced great unrest and tremendous stress in our society and culture. And we must remind ourselves that much, if not most, of the crime and stress in our society, the number of people incarcerated and being incarcerated, the general hopelessness and depression have all proven in large part to be the result of the absence of fathers and true biblical fathering. You need genuine biblical fathering. You simply cannot be at your best without a father or a father figure showing you the way. Even Jesus affirmed this in his life and ministry. When he approached his greatest trial and moment of need, he turned to his Father in heaven, and he trusted his Father's heart. Regardless of what he wanted, Jesus rested not in his own will, but the will of his Father. Jesus understood that his heavenly Father knew best. And that's just the point. We all have heard and perhaps experienced horror stories of abusive fathers, indifferent fathers who didn't love, didn't care, weren't present. But it's your heavenly Father, and your Father in heaven still knows what's best for you. The society in which you live will never be right until people within it understand and know and chase after the Father in heaven's heart. Jesus' entire life was ordered according to his Father's heart. Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him, the Father, who sent me, and to accomplish his work. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. These sayings of Jesus express his absolute confidence in and complete submission to his Father's heart and desires. Jesus' attitude and commitment to his Father's heart was not at all diminished as he approached Calvary. If anything, it was enhanced. 
Jesus' prayers were always aligned with his Father's will. His prayers, therefore, were always heard and always answered. On one occasion, Jesus said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. In John 17, we have the longest recorded prayer from Jesus' lips right before his crucifixion, when the climax of his earthly ministry was to be fulfilled. These are the things Jesus was seeking, the things on his own heart, and therefore, by definition, the things on his Father's heart. Jesus prays in the Spirit for you exactly what your Father wants for you. We're going to look at the first part of this prayer and look at it, Lord willing, over a few weeks because the the lack of fathering in society demands us to slow down and pause and think about what's on our Father's heart, what sort of priorities we need to own for ourselves. John 17, beginning at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these things, these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. There is so much to learn this Father's Day about what your Heavenly Father wants from you, His children. It makes sense to take time and process the desires of his heart and seek in Christ to pursue these priorities for yourself and others in your circle of influence in order that our society and culture might know and experience the blessings of living under the Father's reign in Christ. They might know the blessings of pursuing and chasing after the Father's heart. That's what God wants for all of us. That's what it says in the book of Proverbs, My son, give me your heart. This is the only way to uproot the crushing impact that fatherlessness has waged in our world. What we learn here is for everyone, every believer, whether male or female, married or unmarried, father, mother, child, whoever you are, these priorities, these principles, these kingdom qualities are what your Father in heaven wants from you. They are your birthright, and seeking their application is the only way for there to be a better world now and for all future generations.
Jesus, above all others, has had the most blessed impact in our world. No one has had a more positive impact in this world. Every good thing comes from our Father's heart through Him. Jesus has always had the Father's best interest for you, His people, and by definition for all people on His heart. Therefore, the priorities found in this prayer, the priorities of Jesus' heart, the priorities of the Father's heart, must become your principles for living. First, it is essential to understand our Savior's state of mind leading up to this prayer. It teaches us how to think as we approach life, as we approach prayer. The context of John 17 begins in John 13. John uh, chapter 13 emphasizes Jesus' great love as he humbly washes his disciples' feet. He does that, however, knowing he is going to his Father, knowing that his Father has given all things into his hand. He expresses in John 13 true, genuine love. And you see that because knowing he's going to his Father and knowing that his Father has put everything into his hands is not all he knew. He knew also that he was soon to be betrayed and denied by the very ones he loved. And in that chapter, he calls us to love as well. Chapter 14 emphasizes Jesus' comfort and peace for his disciples. Let not your heart be troubled. And that comfort comes through the Father's provision. I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many rooms. And also the Father's provision of the Holy Spirit. I will ask the Father and he will give you another comforter. I will not leave you as orphans. Chapter 15 emphasizes our ability to be fruitful through union with Christ, even in the context of being hated. That's how the Father gets glorified, that we bear much fruit. In chapter 16, Jesus promises we will overcome in view of the Holy Spirit's work. Although there are sorrows and hardships that we will experience, we will overcome. And we must remember we are loved and comforted in union and communion with Christ. We abide in Him, the vine, the true vine. And we will overcome because He accompanies us. And it's with that backdrop that Jesus begins this prayer by saying, The hour has come. Father, the hour has come. And throughout John's account, Jesus spoke of his hour. In chapter 2, he told his mother that his hour had not come. John mentions in chapters 7 and 8 that Jesus' hour had not come. It is not until chapter 12, verse 23, that we hear Jesus saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And what Jesus means is that his hour to die has come. He sees his death as glory. He continues, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it, it bears much fruit. Listen, if you only have one apple tree, 
and you want another apple tree, you've got to plant some apple seeds, and those seeds must die for there to be another apple tree. It was Jesus' whole purpose in life to come to this hour, this hour of his death, this hour of being glorified, so others, there might be a company of others who are like him. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It's just a agricultural truth that if you plant apple seeds, you get apple trees. If you plant orange seeds, you get orange trees. And Jesus is saying, if you plant me, you're going to get more like me. Jesus' death was predestined. It was a definite plan of his Father. So he is asking his Father to fulfill what was foreordained to take place. Jesus' death is glorious because of who he is and the results of his crucifixion. Prior to the incarnation of Jesus, in the totality of human history, no one and nothing was ever able to handle your sinful, our sinful condition humanity's sinful condition and the sinful system that has bound this world up in slavery to Satan. Jesus is requesting to be set forward as the one, the only one capable of actually dealing with your sinful condition and the sinful system of this world. That's glorious. Father, glorify your Son, is, is Jesus in part saying he's the only one who has that kind of honor and that kind of glory to be able to deal in his death with the sinful condition. All the bulls and goats of the Old Testament only reminded the worshiper that they were sinful. But Jesus, this, this particular Lamb of God, can not only take away your sins, as far as the East is from the West, but also clean your conscience and truly reconcile and restore you to God. No one but Jesus can bear the guilt of your sin and the punishment your sins deserve and bring you back to God. Jesus is asking God to take him to the next level of being arrested and tried and condemned in order that he might give up his life for you to know the Father's love and communion with him. Jesus' prayer is not self-focused, therefore, though initially it might sound that way, Father, glorify your Son. But he asked to be glorified in order that he might glorify the Father. By this he means to give the knowledge of the Father's heart through his death to every person God will save. Jesus has absolute authority over every person in the world. And he has that authority in order that he might give eternal life 
to all of God's elect. No person, no people can stop Jesus from saving his people and giving them eternal life. Eternal life is defined, as Jesus goes on to pray, as as the knowledge of the only true God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. It's those two things together. It is the knowledge of God as he is made known in the gospel. Jesus was sent to save. He was sent to give up his life as a ransom. He was sent to deacon, to serve, that there might be abundant life, that there might be eternal life, that there might be freedom from the rule of sin, from the captivity and the tyranny of Satan, that there might be freedom to finally submit to God's will and enjoy him as Father. When Jesus glorifies the Father, he reveals his Father's name and therefore his person. Listen to what Jesus says in John 12. Jesus said, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? He's talking about the same hour that he's praying about in John 17. He goes on to say, But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. It is at the hour of the crucifixion that the name of the Father is revealed in full bloom. It's, it's at that time of the crucifixion that the name of the Father, the glory of the Father, can be seen in HD. The Father's name is revealed through Scripture in light of the Old Testament and its relationship with the immediate context of John 17's emphasis on the crucifixion, the Father's name highlights his presence in the person of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, his mercy, his grace, his being slow to anger, him being abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness down through the millennia of keeping his promises, his his forgiving our iniquity, our transgression and sin, and his not clearing the guilty. And all of this is seen in full bloom at Calvary. Jesus bore and took our guilt, and he wasn't cleared, he was condemned, until he could pay the debt we owe. And therein you see this mercy and grace and patience and faithfulness and steadfast love and forgiving power of God. These qualities that Jesus longed to reveal about his Father, Father, glorify the Son in order that the Son may glorify you. He longed for his Father's heart to be revealed, to be made known in clear, variegated colors. He longed to reveal his Father to his people and to the world. This is the work Jesus came to accomplish. He talks as if it's already done. It's just as good as done because his commitment and his determination are not going to change. He came to accomplish these works to make the heart of the Father known through his own sacrificial death for sinners. Jesus uh, then prays to be glorified with the Father in his presence the way he was uh, before the world was created. 
And that's interesting because before the world was created, we weren't here, obviously. And Jesus is asking for the glory he had before God ever said, let there be light. Jesus is asking for the uninhibited, unlimited, and unhindered presence of and communion with his Father. In his presence there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. This is especially true in view of him being forsaken on Calvary. And of course, in the resurrection, being brought back, as it were, into that fellowship and communion, the richness and the glory and splendor of it. Although there is much in this prayer that is unique to Christ, you must apply its principles to your life, considering the major portion of this prayer is related to Jesus' church. When we think about Father's Day and we think about the Father's heart and the things that Jesus has, has so far expressed in this prayer, those things need to be applied. Though they're unique to Christ, they must be applied to, to your heart. And they must be applied to the heart and lives of others as you interact and encounter them in order for society to change, in order to have a society that chases the Father's heart the way society was supposed to be from the beginning. David is commended as a man who was a man after God's own heart, and even he had sin in his life and ways in which he fell. And Jesus preeminently is is the God-man who always chased after the Father's heart and never fell. And he is the perfect image and perfect likeness of, of God. He's the perfect human. We say it's human to sin, and that's wrong. It's, it's, it's inhumane to sin. Jesus was the best human there ever was, and he never sinned. It's more human not to sin it's more like a beast to sin. This prayer reveals through Christ what your Father in heaven wants from you. Jesus' hour for death, the hour has come, is directly related to Jesus' command to you to deny yourself and daily take up your cross. Our hour to die to sin is omnipresent. We're always being called by God to die to sin, to die to self. We must walk worthy of the gospel. Remember how Jesus was, it was his glory that he was able to bear sin and to, to deal with uh, the ravages that sin brought into the world. And we, uh, obviously on a far infinitely different scale than Jesus, we're called to walk worthy of the gospel in order to be clean vessels of honor, as it says in 2 Timothy, that are useful to the master, to Jesus, and are ready to do every good work. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's what we ask for. We ask, oh God, work in our hearts that we would, we would have a life that's filled with good works so that people might give glory to you, very much like what Jesus is praying here. Paul, uh, on occasion, as 
We turn to Romans chapter 12. Paul said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. The Father seeks those who are going to worship him in spirit and in truth. This is what it means. Do not be conformed to this world. Some have said, and rightly so, that don't let the world squeeze you into its mold but rather be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will. It takes courage. Joshua was told when he went into the land, be strong and courageous. And in order for us to be strong and courageous, we have to have a renewed mind. We have to have the mercies of God in view in order to really live a life that doesn't allow the world to squeeze us into its mold, but a life that's really transformed by being washed in our brain, by being renewed in the spirit of our minds. It is this kind of self-sacrificing, biblically informed and transformed lifestyle that brings glory to the Father that has a major impact in the world and society around us. Jesus said on occasion, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life, will keep it for the knowledge of God, the knowledge of the gospel, and it will be spread through that person. Next, the Father wants you to pray unselfishly. As we saw Jesus, he prayed that he might be glorified in order that he might glorify the Father. Never make your request about you. You are not the goal of your prayers, interestingly enough. We are prone to pray, Oh God, please bless me, and leave it there. But we must learn to pray, Oh God, please bless me in order that I may be a blessing to others. We have to learn, as it says in the Bible, uh, it implies there, to pray, uh, give to me. That's a, that's a popular prayer. Oh Lord, give to me. But we have to learn to pray, Oh Lord, give to me in order that I might give to others. We see something uh, like this for example, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have. That's where our prayer sometimes ends, that we want stuff. Get all you can, can all you get, and sit on the cans. But it says here that he, that he might have something to share with anyone in need. Third, we see a, 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 an application in this prayer of Jesus. Um, our Father wants us to know Him and be committed to making Him known in word and deed, even at the cost of our comfort, our convenience, and our life. You know, when Jesus said that there was a sower who went out to sow, some seed fell on the way and the the devil came, the birds came, and ate it up, snatched it from the heart. And, and there was a seed that fell on the rocky soil, and when trouble came, it all shriveled away. And there's another seed that's often a lot like 
the folks in America, unfortunately, that that seeds plant it, but there's all kinds of things choking it. The desires of the world, the pleasures of the world, riches, the desire for other things, worries and anxieties, they they grow up and choke the word. But we want to be that soil, that good soil. The seed is planted and produces a a fruit some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. And in order to be that way, we have to be committed to making him known, to knowing him and making him known in word and deed, even at the cost of comfort, convenience in our own life. Finally, God wants us to desire him more than anything and anyone else. The psalmist could say, there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. In another place, the psalmist could say, this one thing I desire that I might dwell in the house of the Lord to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. God wants you to want him. It's one thing we learn from this this prayer that was on Jesus's heart, that was on the Father's heart, is that the Father wants us to want him. Because there's no greater desire we can ever have. And it's not narcissistic for God to want that. All good comes from God. There is no good apart from God. There's no joy. There's no peace. There's no nothing good apart from God. So for him to want us to want him is for him to want us to want the best. That is Jesus' greatest longing. We should, we should desire to rather be at home with the Lord, like Paul says, to depart and be with Christ, because that's far better than being here. And this must be our desire for ourselves and others, this desire of our Heavenly Father must be what stirs us to live in this world. If you're not happy and joyful about going home and being with Jesus, you're not ready to live in this world the right way. It's, it's, with, it's with the future, eternity in view, that gives you the right heart, the right priority to live on earth. These desires of your Heavenly Father are the priorities missing in the hearts of people in society today. These are the desires of a true father. However, God's children, you must be willing to give up life so others might know the Father's love in Christ. We must structure our prayers for God to be glorified in in, in our lives and in the lives of others. Moses and Paul even prayed to be cut off and cursed if that were possible, so others might know the Lord. That is the heart and mind of Christ, who willingly allowed himself to be cut off so you might know God as your Father. We must be so heavenly-minded that we finally become good for the earth and the society's environment. It is only when we long for the glorious presence of the Father that the glory of heaven begins to be seen now on earth with transformed people and a transformed society. 
God bless you, and happy Father's Day.